Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of November 2018 and this is episode 91. On today's programme, I talk to historian Dr Vanda Wilcox about her recent book on morale of the Italian army during the Great War. This has just been re-released in paperback by Cambridge University Press and will be available from the 20th of December. Vanda, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your recent book on the morale of the Italian army during the Great War. This has just been republished in paperback by Cambridge University Press. Could you start the interview by giving us some background on yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Thanks, Tom. Uh, My interest in the Great War, I guess, began as a child, as maybe for so many people it did, uh, visiting the battlefields. And actually, in my family, it was my mother who was the great enthusiast for military history. And she used to take us to visit the battlefields in uh, in Belgium and northern France of both world wars. Uh, And then as a teenager, I started to read works by Lynn MacDonald, Martin Middlebrook, all the classics, I suppose. And that sparked my interest. When I got to university, I studied with Professor Adrian Gregory, a British specialist and uh, I just chose it as my as my PhD subject from that really. To establish the context of our discussion can you give us a brief overview on three things? First the Italian society in 1914, the size and state of the Italian army and why Italy declared war in 1915. So just three small questions. Yeah. Indeed yes very <laughs> small questions. So Italy in the early 20th century is a constitutional monarchy. It's a state which has sometimes been described as a democracy in the making. It's in the process of democratisation, but it's early days. It's a state which is also in the process of industrialising, but again, it's early days. So it's still a majority agricultural population with very high rates of illiteracy and a very small aristocratic ruling class. The Italian army was a major focus for the state in that period. They had a very, very large military budget. They were very keen to build up their military strength as much as possible, both army and navy. And it was based on conscription. So all men, at least in theory, all men at the age of 18 did two years of of compulsory military service. Uh, So the army was fairly large. They have a a standing army, which was fairly large, but an army of, of a mass army of conscripts who were not necessarily particularly professionalized or particularly enthusiastic. So when it comes to the outbreak of the First World War, Italy, in fact, was previously allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary for strategic reasons. But the war that was about to be fought didn't really suit Italy's purposes. So on August the 3rd, 1914, Italy actually declared its neutrality. And what happens between that moment of declaring neutrality and the spring of 1915 is that both sides tried to court the Italians over to their side. So the Germans and the Austrians are making some promises to encourage Italy to come and join them on their side, and the British and the French are making others. And essentially, the British and the French have the biggest cookies, and in April 1915, Italy signs the Treaty of London and agrees to join the Allies. And what Italy is really looking for is to, in their view, complete the process of national unification. So in the 19th century, the leadership of Garibaldi and so on, they'd unified these previously separate areas, but there are two big areas of territory that they still haven't incorporated and which are in the hands of Austria-Hungary still, which is the Trentino, the area around Trento in the north, and over in the northeastern border, 
the port city of Trieste. And both of these areas have a large Italian population, and many Italians feel that they should be part of the Italian kingdom. So the idea of going to war against Austria-Hungary in 1915 is to finally conquer, or in their view, liberate those areas and incorporate them into the motherland. Now, the traditional view of the Italian fighting spirit and martial ability had often been highly, highly derogatory and based on crude racial stereotypes, often drawn from supposed poor Italian military performance during the Second World War. Do these views have any basis in fact? Well, yes and no. I would say not really. Um, we can, of course, find examples of Italian military incompetence, but you know, we can find examples of military incompetence from pretty much any nation that you care to mention. Uh, we can find, in the First World War context, examples of terrible Italian defeat. Um, and we'll talk more about Caporetto in a moment, but we can also find terrible British, French, any other nation you care to mention defeats too. So uh, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of it is about crude racial stereotypes. And what's very interesting is that actually in 1918, significant numbers of British and French servicemen are deployed to Italy. And when the British troops first arrive in Italy, they think it's going to be a holiday camp. The weather's better, it's not muddy like Flanders. They're full of excitement about this wonderful vacation that they're going to spend in Italy. And they don't think the fighting is going to be particularly challenging because if the Italians can do it, how hard can it be? And actually, they find that that's not really the case. And it's a bit of a shock to the system when you suddenly find uh, that you're up a mountain where you may die from an avalanche, where uh, shells hit rocks which send off razor-sharp splinters flying through the air at head height. Uh, and all the rest of it, it's a very different kind of warfare and it's a really brutal form of warfare. Um, and quite experienced Western Front soldiers were sometimes quite startled by the kind of combat that's going on on the Italian front. So I think that the Italian army has been much misaligned. But that's not to say that it's all brilliant and there certainly are many episodes of incompetence and failure too. Now your book examines the morale of the Italian soldier from two perspectives. You consider what motivated the individual to enlist, serve and endure and then you, you assess the role of the Italian state and army to encourage and sustain that morale. Before we discuss these two angles, how would you describe morale? This is a great and very difficult question and as many historians or theorists of morale as you would get together in a room each would have their own definition I think. Um, my definition is that it's the willingness to perform an assigned task. First of all, I say willingness, not necessarily enthusiasm. You don't have to be enthusiastic uh, to perform the task. You just have to do it to the best of your ability, um, in my view. And this isn't really the same as the spirit of the troops or the mood of the troops. You could be pretty depressed, but still fight effectively and perform well. Your emotional state isn't necessarily connected, although, of course, it, it may be. And the reason that I emphasise that, that it's the willingness to perform an assigned task is that morale has to be directed towards an objective. And a good way to think about this is to think about men on strike. If you go on strike and you're a very solid, cohesive, determined group of strikers and your spirits are high and you're committed to the trade union leadership, whatever it may be, from the perspective of the union, your morale is high. From the perspective of the employer, your morale is low because you're a disaffected worker. So morale is inherently directed towards a purpose. And in the case, obviously, of an army, it's directed towards performing the tasks which the army is assigning. So what factors were important in motivating the Italian citizen to enlist, serve, and how did these change over the course of the war? Okay, well, 
Um, as I already mentioned, the Italian army is based on conscription on a two-year compulsory military service for all in peacetime. And what that means is that when the war is declared in 1915, that a significant proportion of the adult male population has already performed military service and they're immediately called back up. So there isn't much of a choice to enlist. But there is a choice whether or not to answer the call. And draft evasion is a very real concern for the Italian state. There are several hundred thousand men who do evade the draft or try to evade the draft. So although it's mandatory service, people still assess whether they want to answer the call. And the vast majority of men do answer the call and they do serve. But of course, they're not volunteers and they're not choosing. So it becomes a little bit harder to uh, delve, I guess, into their motivations. What I would say is the overriding motivation is a sense of duty. It's not necessarily enthusiasm. It's not even necessarily particularly patriotic. As a reasonably recently unified country... The notion of Italy and of Italianness is really still a work in progress in 1915. Just one example would be language. Most Italians don't speak standard Italian, they speak a local dialect. And they may not even understand what we would consider standard Italian particularly well, especially if they're from one of the more remote regions, which means that they find themselves in a unit with people who are supposed to be their fellow countrymen that they might not even be able to have a proper conversation with. So under those circumstances, what does Italy mean? What is this arbitrary, quite abstract notion of the nation, of the fatherland, all the symbolism of king and country under those circumstances is going to be much weaker. So men don't necessarily have a huge sense of patriotism. What they do have is a sense of duty, that the state has a right to ask them to serve. And more or less, the majority of, of men do accept that. The country has a right to call on them. What changes slowly over time is the government begins to realise that that maybe isn't quite enough, essentially. And the efforts to inculcate more patriotism, to teach men about the causes of the war, about the purpose of this endeavour, become slowly stronger. And it, it takes perhaps a surprisingly long time for them to figure that out. It's not really until 1918 that we see sustained efforts to encourage real commitment to the war or real understanding of the causes of the war. In 1980, uh, 1915, sorry, there's a very aristocratic mentality that the ordinary soldier doesn't even need to really know what it's all about. It doesn't matter what he thinks. He just needs to do as he's told. By 1918, they've realised that's not enough. The ordinary soldier needs to know what the war is for, why are we fighting, why should we care, and to see it as a real mission that is relevant to everybody. So gradually, the Italian state and Italian army authorities begin to work harder at inspiring that loyalty. But leadership is is not really great. The, the tradition of a more paternalistic, supportive, especially junior officership that perhaps we see in the British tradition is really lacking in the Italian tradition. And relationships between junior officers and their men are often very poor, especially again in the early years of the war. This is something that gradually the army works to improve. So did the morale of the individual soldier come close to breaking point, for instance, in a similar way to the French army in early 1917 after the failed Nouvelle Offensive? We don't see anything in Italy on the scale of the of the disorder in France. That's certainly true. We only have one real example of mutiny, uh, which takes place in the Catanzaro Brigade in July 1917. And what happens there is that the brigade is ordered back up to the front lines and it revolts, it refuses to do so. Uh, there's clear evidence of premeditation. They shoot a few of their officers. They also kill a military policeman who was there undercover. And he was there undercover because rumours that there were grievances in that unit had already been circulating. So he'd been assigned undercover to see what was going on. Um, but they know who he is. Uh, he's shot, um, lots of shots are fired, a couple of 
um, other officers are wounded and really their grievances are about being sent back up to the lines when they feel they have already served their time. There's a perception of unfairness that not everybody is being equally required to do their bit uh, and that they feel they've spent plenty of time in the front lines and it's somebody else's turn, right? Send somebody else, not always us. Uh, but that's the only time where we see actual violence directed against officers and so that's the only episode that I would classify as a mutiny. We do have episodes of collective indiscipline which are more or less peaceful um, but they're mostly away from the front lines they take place in rear areas they often take place when men are being traveling back up to the line uh, so at train stations or on trains um, and they tend to involve people being drunk singing protest songs relatively low-key stuff sometimes throwing stones at people but that tends to be the um the extent of the violence i guess in these episodes of, of collective indiscipline so it's not a, a mass breakdown of discipline and we certainly don't have anything like what we see in france what we see rather tends to be individuals breaking down and deserting so desertion is the, the big military offense that the italian army is concerned with and at various different parts of the war it, it, it does seem to be reaching crisis proportions but it's very much an individual crime men don't discuss this with their fellows they're afraid perhaps of being reported they simply sneak off on their own and in a way this is an option which isn't open to the British soldier on the western front because he can't just go home but the Italian can especially if he's from somewhere not that far away you could sneak back through the lines and make your you know head for home without too much difficulty there's not the channel in the way um, and so particularly this happens when there's a crisis in the family a lot of men weigh up their responsibilities and they think yes the state has a right to summon me to serve but if there's an urgent crisis at home maybe there's a problem on the farm maybe their wife's just given birth maybe their sister's got pregnant and the guy is refusing to marry her maybe their aged mother is sick they just get up and go home to sort it out and they think that they have the right basically to do that so they accept the duty of service, but they balance that against other duties which they consider to be just as real and just as important. Now we should examine the methods the army and the state use to support or coerce morale of the, quote, average soldier. What welfare measures did the army take to encourage soldiers to fight, and how effective were these? The short answer would be not very many measures and not very effective. Um, as I said at the start of the war, there was a general sense from both army and state that ordinary men's opinions didn't matter. And there was also, in Italy as elsewhere, that illusion of a reasonably short war. So if you're only going to be fighting for six months to a year, uh, it doesn't really matter what the troops think or feel, they'll get on with it and do as they're told. As the war goes on, it's clear that that's not really appropriate. But in the early period, it's really discipline, that I think perhaps we'll talk about more in a moment, which is used as a method for managing troop behaviour, rather than more positive incentives for encouraging high morale. And we can see this very clearly, first of all, in the attitudes towards leadership and officership. So one of the things that I do in my book is I look at the process of officer training. How were officers trained to lead their men? What kinds of attitudes towards their men were officers learning when they went to military academies or when they went on their training courses and the short answer is it was just not seen as particularly important the quality of leadership as a personal set of behaviors of man management I guess we could call it 
was just not prioritised at all. Things like um, provision of decent amounts of rest and of leisure activities is something which comes not from the state and not even from army authorities, but by private initiative. So one of the most important figures in this story is actually the daughter of the chief of general staff, Luigi Cadorna, his name is the general, and his daughter Carla thought that it would be a good idea to set up, I guess, the equivalent of YMCA huts, that there ought to be places that soldiers could go when they were off duty. And she, because of her privileged position, is able to introduce this plan. And some mid-ranking officers in various different units pick up on this type of idea. They start to provide leisure and recreation facilities. Some of them begin to think that maybe greater propaganda efforts, greater sort of patriotic instruction would be useful. So we get this very, very decentralised process of innovation through 1916 and 1917, where individual officers or even private individuals, including um, a number of religious figures, the number of high-ranking religious figures or people who are appointed as chaplains, to the Italian army, begin to launch these initiatives really of their own accord. They do seem to make a difference, right? It's not surprising, perhaps, that this definitely seems to improve the overall mood, the overall spirit in the army. Whether it's going to change their behaviour on the battlefield is obviously another more complex question, but it definitely seems to help raise spirits. And what we see is that in 1918, with a new chief of general staff, these very local, decentralised innovative experiments are brought into a centralised structure and finally the army says actually we need to roll this out in a systematic way across all of our units. So we see a lot of new measures being introduced in that final year of the war. They're not necessarily new in themselves but it's new that they're being done in a a systematic way at last. And the big complaint throughout the war from most of the troops is about leave, that there's not enough leave and that it's not at useful times. Farmers, which make up a huge proportion of the army, well practically two-thirds of infantrymen are peasant farmers farmers, they don't want leave at Christmas because there's nothing to do on the farm at Christmas. They want leave at harvest time. And in 1918, the army introduces harvest leave in a very structured and organised way. And that makes a huge difference to the to the willingness to fight of peasant soldiers who finally feel that their civilian obligations can be met within the framework of the army as well. So now we turn to the role of formal discipline and punishment. Um, what sort of measures did the Army High Command uh, implement to, to maintain, I suppose, discipline within the Army? And what impact did these have on the disciplinary record of the Army? Well, many people know that the Italian Army had the most brutal of all, certainly Western European, disciplinary regimes. And if you compare simply the figures for capital sentences in Italy compared to France, Britain or even Germany, we might expect the Germans to have a very harsh record but really they don't, Uh, the Italians are certainly uh, executing more of their own men than anyone else in the West. We don't have very good figures say for Russia or Turkey so it's hard to compare there but they're, they're, they're certainly at the very top of the list precisely because at the outset of the war the idea was that the men should just shut up and do as they were told the disciplinary regime was extremely hardline. There was no scope for understanding the different needs or reactions of ordinary soldiers. Obedience, unquestioning obedience was the rule. So there is more use of capital punishment. Uh, 750 men are sentenced to death uh, and executed. Uh, Several thousand are sentenced to death and then have their sentences commuted. But 750 men are executed formally during the war. But there's two further elements to the Italian disciplinary regime which make it particularly brutal. The first is the use of summary execution. So the use of summary execution is quite widespread. And when Luigi Cadorno is in charge, so up until 1917, it is actually his preferred means of proceeding in that the men basically will be terrified. They will know that if they step out of line, they may be shot on the spot 
without any trial. Uh, Cardona has a very low opinion of trials and of lawyers and of what he calls boring legalistic nonsense. Uh, let's just cut to the chase and shoot people. Um, so we have at least 140 cases of well-documented summary execution and there may well be more than that. And in some of those 140 cases, more than one man is executed. So our total figures for execution, and it's hard to be precise, but are around 1,200 in total. As well as summary execution, the Italian army under Cadorna also practices decimation. So selecting men at lot. They're not usually one in 10, it's sometimes one in six or one in some other slightly random number, but we can call it decimation for uh, brevity. And this is where you have a large group of men. For example, let's say someone throws a stone from a crowd, you can't identify who it is, or someone shouts, shouts a rude slogan like death to the king from a crowd and you can't identify who it is. You might just randomly select a number of them uh, by lot for execution and you would also then randomly select the firing squad so the firing squad is always made up of men from the offenders unit and their obligation to be part of the firing squad is also part of the punishment essentially and again we have a number of episodes of this decimation starting in 1916 um, and going on throughout the time that Cadorno was in charge so this is the um, the harsh face of military justice in the Italian army. Again, this is somewhat changed in 1918. I keep coming back to this idea of 1918 as a year of big change. We have a new chief of general staff, um, uh, Armando Diaz, and he immediately ends decimation and he ends summary execution. He still continues to uh, approve executions, but he wants them to take place after a trial, which also includes the possibility to appeal for clemency, make an appeal to the king, for example, and have a complete legal process. So these more kind of extrajudicial elements of the summary execution on the battlefield are ended in 1918. So this is, I mean, the system is brutal. It's brutal for the people carrying out the discipline. It's hard on officers. Officers find it, in many cases, incredibly hard to know that they're expected to implement these kind of rules. And officers who don't uh, perform in a sufficiently hardline way are very often removed from their position. Cadorna was a great firer of generals. 217 generals are fired in his two and a half years in charge. So right the way up to the top, you could be sacked for failing to be sufficiently brutal in your, in your responses. Uh, and so there's a, an incredible pressure on everybody. It does create a real climate of fear. It greatly inhibits innovation and flexibility. It's very hard to be a creative and innovative leader with this kind of system hanging over you. And so in that sense, it has a real repercussion, I would argue, on the actual battlefield performance of the army and on the possibility of institutional learning, which is a very interesting topic that we're seeing a lot of research about at the moment. How does an army learn? How does an army improve? Well, if you have this incredibly brutal and rigid disciplinary structure, it's very hard to innovate and experiment and learn because if something goes wrong, your men are in the firing line and you've lost your position. So it has a very damaging effect both on ordinary soldiers and on the officers that are leading them. Which brings us to um, an interesting situation that the Italian army found itself in, in late 1917. This was the Battle of Caporetto, where the second Italian army was defeated by, I think, a combined Austrian and German attack. Now, it's been said that this was, the fact that the Germans and the Austrians were so effective in this um, attack was due to the collapse and the morale of the Italian second army. Is there any truth in this? As with so many things, yes and no. So there is absolutely a huge crisis of morale in second army. 280,000 prisoners are captured in less than four weeks. 
And about the same number of men desert and head for home. They throw their weapons on the ground. They say the war is over and they scarper. So yes, that's a crisis of morale. Is that the cause of the defeat? No. This story of thousands of men abandoning their positions, throwing away their guns, is not the full picture. If we look at the first 48 hours of the battle, the beginning of the Austro-German joint assault, we see a very different picture. We see Italian units fighting very effectively in some places, certainly very bravely. And what happens is that in many cases they run out of munitions. They hold their position for 48 hours, 24 hours, until they can't fight on any longer. Many of them are encircled in the fog. They find themselves completely surrounded and have no choice but to surrender. A number of uh, units find themselves uh, without any officers. Once their officers are killed or captured, they don't know what to do. The line of communications breaks down very quickly. There's no reserve. Uh, there's no munitions or supplies. And it's a straightforward military defeat, an overwhelming military defeat that takes place in that first 48 hours. Once that has happened and the, the Austro-German attack has broken through the line, then the morale crisis begins. Then people begin to panic, they begin to flee. If you think you're 10 miles behind the line and that you're in a pretty safe, cushy position and suddenly a German unit pops up in front of you, it's not surprising that you might panic. What's going on? How have they got there? Have we been defeated and we've not heard any news? Let's run away. That's the moment that panic starts. And once that panic has set in, it spreads like wildfire. So the morale is very fragile. People are very easily disheartened. But that's not the cause of the initial defeat. It's, if anything, a consequence of the defeat. Uh, so I think that we need to be a bit more careful about how we look at the relationship between what's going on on the battlefield and the troops' morale. Yes, weak morale is a factor, but it's not quite as straightforward, I think, as some people have um, have understood it to be. And it's very important that the Italian army stabilises its own line. So Britain and France immediately agree to support the Italians and to dispatch troops, but Britain, British and French troops don't enter the lines until late in November. And actually, the Italians have stopped retreating by November the 10th. They stabilise their own new positions they reorganise, they recoup and they start fighting again. So although British and French support is really important, it is not the case, as some historians have argued in the past, that it's Britain and France that rescue Italy and stop the retreat. The Italians pull themselves together and sort it out and only then do British and French troops enter. In fact, this was even one of the requirements. Lloyd George made it very clear that British troops weren't going to rescue Italy. Italy had to rescue itself and then Britain would be willing to help, not the other way around. And finally, Christmas is coming up and your book would make an ideal gift both for office and home use. Where is it available from? Uh, well, I'm hoping to say all good bookstores, uh, but also, of course, uh, online from all the usual retailers. The Cambridge University Press website uh, will also be selling it. And uh, yeah, buy two, buy three. Give one to your mother-in-law. I certainly will. <laughs> Vanda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>